Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 13th. It's a Tuesday. Here is 2021, if you're not sure about that. And this is episode 2856 of the Survival Podcast. Yeah, I just kind of had a flashback doing that. Uh, to when I first started doing the show back in 2008. I think I was into like three or four episodes, and there was at least somebody listening. And somebody in the first few weeks, maybe it would have been, you know, 15 episodes or so, reached out and said, hey, at the beginning of every show, can you say what date it is, what number of the show it is, so that we know that, so that, you know, we're kind of having a temporal placement here. And that person literally wrote the opening of the Survival Podcast. Not all of it, but a big part of it. Something that's stuck now for 13 years. That's kind of cool. I, I, every once in a while, I like to reflect on how much of the Survival Podcast was built by this audience, not by me. By feedback and suggestions and requests where we did things because there was a demand for it. And, uh, you know, sometimes I, have, I hear from people who say, well, if you would only do this or you'd only do that, you'd be as big as fill in the name of the blank of somebody bigger than me there. I don't care. I don't want to be. I don't want to be any bigger than I am. I don't want to be any smaller, but I don't want to be. I don't care. If I grow more from here, fine. If I stay where I'm at, fine. I don't care. Because this thing became what it's become by serving you. And the people that are here, and there are people that have literally been here with me since the beginning. There are people that I met at my last workshop that finally got to come to one. I've been listening to you since 2009. And that might not be the very beginning, but as far as I'm concerned, it's a freaking beginning. Because 2008 was you know, kind of a just figuring out what the hell this thing was going to be. And man, I will never change what we do. I might continue to improve or make some modifications or things like that, but the core of what we do, how we do it, the place we come from, the mindset we have, the unyielding nature of what I say, the unwillingness to pander to anybody's bullshit, right? That will never change, and I'll tell you why. I don't give a shit how many people it would bring into the tent. It's not fair to the people that put the tent up. And you guys that have been listening a long time, you put the tent up, and we're going to stick with it because I owe it to you. It's my way of telling you that I appreciate you guys helping me get where I am. So thank you for that. I, I really didn't plan on opening with that today, but just when I said that, I had that flashback, and I remembered that day. I don't remember who it was. If you're still out there, I'd love to hear from you. You probably do know who you are if you ever hear this. Anyway, um, today's show is going to be about the modern economic survival mindset. We're going to talk about how to survive from a financial standpoint going forward in the world today. Now, I know what you're thinking. Damn it, Jack. You just did an hour on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency yesterday. I don't want another crypto episode. Don't worry. It's not going to be one. I, I guarantee you that at some point I'll say something about it because I can't not. Because it's one of the best wealth preservation and wealth growth strategies that exist today. But we're going to actually focus more on the income side than the investment side today. We're going to focus on the income side. We're going to we're talk about how to create multiple streams of income. We're going to talk about developing the entrepreneurial mindset. We're going to talk about using your money not just to invest, 
but using your money to set your life up so that you have things that provide things for you that you no longer trade dollars for. If you can grow half your food, there's no reason you shouldn't be wealthy in America. I mean, honest to God, like a person with a regular, decent, blue-collar job should be able to retire wealthy just from being able to produce half their food. And you're going to eat better food and be healthier, by the way, while you're doing it. That's the kind of thing we're coming at today. So don't worry, it won't be another show about why Bitcoin is the best investment strategy there is right now. Even though it is. See, I said I would say something about it. Uh, we're going to actually just talk about a lot of other really great things today. Let's start off by uh, thinking, since we're talking about money here, um, one of the ways I've been able to do this show so long, uh, with so much effort and so much daily input, was the, is the sponsors who have sponsored us. So let's talk about our two sponsors of the day real quick. So first up, we're talking about money today. How about a place to keep your money in a wallet? Not a crypto wallet, a real wallet. The wallet you carry around. How about Ridge Wallet? You know, one of the dangers that we have in the modern age is that all of these IDs and credit cards and all have these RFID chips in them. And there is ways that those can be cloned and stolen without anybody even putting their hands on it, right out of your pocket, right out of your purse, whatever. With the Ridge Wallet, you have that information sandwiched between two pieces of metal that reflect that signal so that your identity and your financial information is protected. It also looks really cool. It took me about a week to really get used to it because I've, I carried a big, thick-ass billfold on my butt for most of my adult life. And so when that went away, it was kind of like it wasn't there no more. You know, you're constantly doing the butt tap trying to find it. But I did that about three years ago, and I have never thought of going back to a traditional billfold after that. Not only is it more secure, you're less likely to forget it, like in the car when you go in the store. Here's a common thing that used to happen to me. Now, I used to have that big-ass billfold in my back pocket, but I knew that my, my, my spine posture and all was important. Uh, I learned that from a chiropractor many years ago. So whenever I'd get in my truck, I would take my wallet out of my pocket and put it in a little cubby hole. And that way, it was a bunch of things there. One, if I had to deal with an officer of the law, I'm not reaching into my pocket. I'm reaching right where he can see, just keep things a little bit more, you know, Safe for everybody. But it was also I wasn't sitting on a, a lump with my ass tilted to one side and messing up my posture. But you know what would happen? Uh, once a month, I'd end up in line at a store. No wallet. It's in the truck. Or I'd end up in the house and I need to you know, buy something online and where's the wallet? It's in the truck. And if it's in the truck, it's also at risk of being stolen. When I switched to Ridge Wallet, it just stopped. That's just one of many reasons you should check out RidgeWallet.com. Remember, MSB members get a discount. Next up, Backwoods Home Magazine. Um, when I started the sponsorship program so many years ago, I went through some angst as to how to vet a sponsor. And I ended up, we used to have a forum, and my forum moderators became my, my hit squad. Basically, I would throw a potential sponsor to them uh, like, a, like a sheep to wolves and say, here, tell me anything you can find wrong with these people. And I would say, you know, I, I don't want you to tell me you think their product's too expensive or whatever. That, that's not, I mean, do they do what they say and say what they do? And so I did that because of something that happened. This is an interesting thing. Since we talked about some of the things, that, the genesis of the show today, I, right when I was coming up with the sponsorship program, I was reading a copy of Mother Earth News Magazine, which I'll never do again, by the way. Um, but there was an advertisement constantly in there for natural cigarettes. And somebody had wrote in to the editor and said, hey, why do you, you're supposed to be for health and nutrition. Why do you advertise cigarettes? And they basically responded with, an advertisement in our magazine is not an endorsement by us for the product. It's somebody that wants to buy the advertising space. We don't vet sponsors at all. And I thought, well, that's wrong 
That's wrong. That's not what I want to do. I mean, if that's what they want to do, that's fine. But, I mean, I when I see an advertisement on a show or whatever, I feel the people behind that are endorsing it because that's what you're implying. Um, so I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Well, when this sponsor I'm going to tell you about now came on board, another magazine, one you can actually trust to be doing the right thing, Backwoods Home Magazine, I didn't even bother. I'm like, I've been, I've been reading this magazine since 1993, and I've been a subscriber since 1994. That's, they have my endorsement implicitly. So I was really grateful when they came on board, and it's awesome. I've had people from Backwoods Home on the show. I've met them at trade shows and stuff like that to, to talk to people and work with people that I've been listening to, reading, and learning from for over 20 years. It's pretty damn awesome. Check them out today at BackwoodsHome.com. Uh, now, let's go ahead and start digging on to this. I want to start out with a, uh, a quote by Ayn Rand. Uh, who I don't quote a lot, but I think she's got a lot of great stuff to quote from, right? Um, but she said about wealth, wealth is the product of man's capacity to think. And there's ways to try to break this, like, well, there's incredible wealth in a natural forest that nobody ever touched. Sure, sure. But we're not talking about, like, intrinsic wealth. We're talking about monetary wealth. The only way that incredibly valuable forest creates monetary wealth is for us to figure out how hopefully ethically to do something with it. In fact, the greater our capacity to think, the less likely it is that we would ever want to harm it and the more likely it is that we'll come out with a way to get monetary energy from it in what you would call a sustainable way, meaning that we're not mining it, we're tending it. So there could be a lot of ways we could do that with the forest. Think about ways, if you had like a primeval, beautiful, several hundred acres of forest, pristine, what can you do with it? There's probably a lot of things you can do with it. You know, it won't destroy the forest to put some trails in it. In fact, it'll keep, if you're going to have people visit the forest, it will keep them from going other places, right? It'll keep the majority of traffic on those trails. So just by doing some trails and maintenance and marketing, we, people like to go see primeval forests. So all of a sudden there's a revenue stream that is contingent upon protecting the forest. Then we might explore the forest and we might find that there are certain medicinal herbs that are growing in the forest naturally. And without really messing anything up, we can probably increase the output of those medicinal herbs. Now we have a harvest that we can get a yield from, but we don't have to destroy the resource. We can actually make the resource more abundant. We can look for all the limbs and things that fall to the ground, and that's a source of fuel. It might be a source for artistry. It could be all kinds of things. And again, now we're doing is we're preventing the buildup of dry tinder, and now we're not going to have something burn the forest down. We've created another economic yield, and that economic yield is compelling us to protect the forest versus to clear-cut it and destroy it. So we can go into that forest if we are a, a minor mindset, and we can take out all these big, beautiful trees and make a huge hit in value on timber, but we've completely extracted the wealth of the land. And it will take a thousand years for it to be what it was, if it's truly a primeval-type forest. Or we can make the same amount of money or more over time and protect the forest. That's the product of man's capacity to think. Even the evil shit is man's capacity to think, to be able to look at this giant tree and say, there's the board lumber square footage and how am I going to get it out of here and what have you. Like That's the capacity to think. All wealth that we build as humans, rather than the intrinsic wealth of a planet, comes from our capacity to think. 
That's why we're going to talk about that a lot today. And as we go into this, you should know, a lot of shows I have, like, I don't, everybody asks, every once in a while, people ask, like, do you have a script? Do you have a transcript of the show, you know? And I'm like, no, I don't. Well, you must have a script. No, I don't. Whatever you look at, the day I do a show and you go pull up the episode, and you look at that episode, whatever you see there, that's 100% of what I use to do the show. Today you'll see less than a paragraph. No bullet points. I'm going straight from the hip on this one. And I think every once in a while we need to do a show like this. This also harkens back to the beginning. There's a lot of stuff today that's making me think about the beginning of this journey. When I started this show, for those that are new, from 2008 all the way through 2009, so a year and a half, 18 months, I did the show on my car on a daily basis on my way to my office. And at the end of 2009, I quit that life. And I went full-time with TSP, and I came back after New Year's of 2010 and did my first episode of TSP from my home. And during the interim before that, that that 18-month period, my sum total of the material that I had to work with while I was recording, driving down the road, you can't like spend your time looking at a screen safely anyway, would be a little 5x7 note card with a few bullet points on it. That's how I did the show back then. And so this is going to kind of take us back to that type of, uh, of a flow in the show. Um, so hopefully long, old, you know, old time listeners, you guys will really appreciate this. And some of you guys that are new, maybe it'll, uh, maybe it'll resonate with you. So anyway, coming at this, I, I want to kind of set the stage for what I'm doing here and why I'm doing it. And I am going to quote Michael Saylor here, but it's, it's not necessarily about Bitcoin. But he said that the road to serfdom is, ex- is, is working exponentially harder for a currency that's growing exponentially weaker. So you work harder and harder to make a little bit more money, but the value of the money that you're earning is declining, and the value of the reserve in that money that you're holding is declining while you're doing it. And it's like being a, a hamster on a wheel, and they just push that hamster more and more and more and more and more until one day the poor critter has a heart attack, which happens to a lot of people in the corporate world. You know, another saying I heard one time, and I don't know where the hell this came from, but in the corporate world, men begin the day by holding a blade to their own throat, and then they tie a noose around it. Of course, that's a shave and a tie. There's there's a lot to that metaphor, and you think about it, maybe you do start to loathe yourself when all you do is work and you don't ever get ahead. And there's a lot of people that feel that way. And it's because they've they've lost touch with the concept that wealth is the product of our capacity to think. Our ability to think. So instead of thinking, how do I get more money? We just say, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to move up. I'm going to get a better job. I'm going to ask for a raise. Right? These are the ways that we approach wealth today. None of those things are really thinking. They're there are training, there are conditioning. You're conditioned when you go to school that the harder you work, the better you'll do. There's a little you know, impetus there that the smarter you are, the better, the better you'll do. But that's really not the, the overriding indoctrination. The overriding indoctrination is obedience, right? And following the plan, doing what you're told, and working really hard will result in gain. That's what you're conditioned to believe. And we do that in schools with a graded, you know, letter grading system. You get an A, a B, a C, a D. But you should right out of the gate realize that the system that's conditioning you to believe that is proof that that doesn't work. Didn't we all know somebody who tried really, really hard, like in high school, 
I mean really hard. They went home and studied every night. They did every assignment that they were given. They did all that they could, and they worked as hard as they possibly could. And they weren't stupid. They just in some ways didn't quite get it or didn't quite retain the information the way that other people did. And, you know, they killed themselves to get like a low B, high C. I don't know anybody that did all that and ended up with an F. I really don't. But I know a lot of people that ended up with, you know, C's, B's, that type of thing. And they were working like crazy. And then didn't you know somebody like me? He had some classes, maybe he got some B's in because he just didn't do some of the work because he did the, the math and figured out, hey, I don't really care. I can, I can maintain my average by, I'll get a B this, this quarter, but with three A's and a B, I'll still end up with an A final average. And they made the mistake of telling people like me that that's how the system worked, that the only thing that went on your transcript was your last grade, your final average for the course. And once that you knew that, and there's like, there's this big report, and if you don't do it, you're gonna, the best you can do is a B if you get A's on all the tests. And you're just like, well, I'll get a B then. I don't care. And then you, you just watch that person coast. And when you were home studying or that person you knew that studied like crazy was home studying, this other person was like hanging out in the woods around a campfire with his burnout buddies drinking beer, drinking yingling, never studied, never sweated it, never cared, and still was an A-B student. Now, you can say that's because that person was smarter. Or maybe it's because that person used their mind and thought about it and figured out, hey, These are the things I actually have to do to get a good grade and figured out that like 70% of what you were being asked to do, asked to learn, asked to read was white noise. That it was never going to be on a test. It was never going to be part of an assignment that carried any weight in its grade. And so it was irrelevant to what you were doing unless you happen to find it interesting. And then you thought, man, I really learn shit when I find it interesting. So if I can figure out these things that I'm not quite as good at, how to become interested in them, I'll do really well. And then that person just kind of coasts through. And yet they do as well or better than the person working hard. In the very system that teaches you that hard work guarantees you results. Really? Are you sure? Are you sure? The same system that teaches you, well, if you go to college, you're going to earn more than the person that doesn't. And then a person like me skates through high school, basically like a burnout but with good grades goes to the Army for a few years, and, and at the age when the average person would have been getting out of college, getting their first job, was already making six figures because I taught myself how to sell and how to design. And so did I work harder than the person that went to college to get to that place in my life? Absolutely not. I got there before them doing less work because of my, my ability to think, my ability to analyze the situation. I don't want you to get the impression that it was all easy. There were some hard times. I had to develop some skills. So I got a job that taught me technical skills and had me driving a lot. And then I took the time that I was on the road where I was getting paid to drive. I was getting paid for my time and my mileage to drive. And while I was doing that, I was educating myself. But I was educating myself on actionable items. I've said this before recently. I talked about how I used to go to half-price books and buy you know, business books, anything I could find. On, on the business and wealth building. And I'd buy a whole cassettes. You know, I mean, those were expensive at the time, guys. I know cassettes, what? Yeah, I'm that old. And I would listen to those things until I would just about wear it out to where I could, I could literally give the presentation, the eight hours of presentation, by, let's say, Dale Carnegie or somebody like that. I could just do it. And I'd be like, okay, I've worn this one out. 
and I'd put it right back in the box that never left the truck. And the next time I found a half-price bookstore, I'd take it in and say, what can I get for it? And usually, you know, I paid about half of what it was, and then I got about half of what I paid. So then I had half that money back, and I would put some other money together, and I'd find another one. And I did that. I slept in my truck. I saved my per diem money that was supposed to be for a hotel, and I slept in the back of my truck multiple nights. When I did get a hotel, I stayed in seedy neighborhoods where it was really cheap, where some people were buying the room by the hour, for God's sakes. And I'm, I'm not kidding, especially when I was in Houston. But I didn't care because I was single and young, and I was building my career. But I only did that for a couple of years. And then I did like two more years of doing the same kind of work without the travel. And I ended up in a situation where most of the work I was doing, I was running crews. So I was already in a, in a leadership position. But they were good guys. They knew what to do. So once I put them off in a direction, they were doing basically all the copper side of things. And I was doing the fiber side of things. Well, fiber work is very repetitive. You get really good at it. You get really fast at it. You become very skilled at it. And so you're sitting there and you're putting connectors on and you're, polishing connectors and plugging them in and testing circuitry and all. And you know what you're doing? You're sitting there so long ago, again, Walkman, tape, headphones, no one gave a shit. Right? That was thinking. And within you know, two years of the first thing, two years of the second thing, next thing you know, I'm a regional sales VP selling the equipment that I, I came up learning how to use. I don't know that I didn't work as hard as the person who went to college. But all my work, do you understand that? All the things that I did made me prepared for that leap. Whereas the person that spent those same four years in college, a huge quantity of what they spent their time, effort doing, that they had to pay lots of money to do, was irrelevant to the rest of their lives. Completely irrelevant to the rest of their lives. You know, Even somebody that came out with a good solid STEM background, like an engineer, But, you know, they were forced to take freaking French literature or something. They had to pay for it. They had to spend time on it. They had to get a good grade on it for their GPA. What, what good is it doing them today? It's not doing them any good. How many, how many lectures did they sit through that there's not a thing that happened during them that actually applies to their engineering work that they do today? Now, I'm not saying that's a path for everybody. I'm saying this is, this is the mindset I'm talking about today. How do I make sure that the things that I'm doing are either things that are luxury and entertaining or whatever. And I'm very clear about that's why I'm doing them. Because if you're doing something that's nothing but a luxury or an entertaining thing or something, you're not enjoying it, stop. Stop. Why are you doing that? Right. So if you realize like there's no long-term benefit to this, and I don't really love doing it, stop. It's a very simple engineering way to think, right? It's an on-off button. It's like, does this thing advance my life? No. Does this thing bring me joy and happiness, and therefore as part of my leisure time and my recreation? No. Then don't do it. Then why are you doing it? Because somebody told you you should? Because you think you have to? That's wasted energy. You're, you're working exponentially harder for money that's worth exponentially less, and then you're burning life force and life energy on things that don't advance your life. If you don't get that right, you are not going to ever have a, a, a powerful economic survival mindset, because that's like the beginning of it. That's, that's how we determine how we're going to spend our time. And then when we do look at the things that we're, we're trying to accomplish from an economic standpoint. We need to first do the things that have the greatest impact. So people like, I want to start a business. Okay, great. 
So I need a website. Very prudent of you. What kind of business? I want to be a handyman. Yeah, you don't need a website. You don't need a website. You need a friggin' YouTube and Odyssey channel and social media. And a domain name pointed at whichever one of them you do best with. And you need to, the first thing you need to do is go find some customers and start swinging a hammer. Figure out how to, in your first jobs, when you don't have materials or tools or whatever to, to do the job, how do I get this job to pay for that tool? Now I have that tool for the rest of my life. That advances your agenda, right? If you need a, 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 a saw, right, and you need a specialty saw, something that's going to cost 300 bucks, and your first job makes you enough profit to pay for that $300 saw, and that saw is a 10- or 20-year investment if you take care of it, That, that time, even though it didn't result in dollars in your pocket, was well spent. One of the most successful men that I know, incredibly successful guy, started out his contracting work exactly that way. The first job pays for the product that I need, the thing that I need, the tools that I need. The second job I take is going to use those tools. I'm not doing two in a row, row where I'm coming out with nothing but the tools. So as soon as I get this job, and I know I'm going to need this material, this stuff to do it with, I'm immediately hunting another job that lets me leverage that new asset. And maybe after two or three of those, and I start to see other opportunities, now I got a job and I have to add this other asset to my portfolio. Okay, now I'm willing to invest some of that job, maybe not all of it, but some of the profits of that job to buying that asset. Now I got those two assets together. And you keep stacking it and stacking it and stacking it. What this man did got so good at what he was doing, he got so good at figuring out how to fix shit that broke, things that were going wrong, he actually got to a point for a long time what his business model was, he would find jobs that were multi-million dollar jobs already in the hole. Somebody else already had the job. It's already losing money. And you could put a spreadsheet to it and you could say, this guy is going to lose $5 million on this job. And he could go into it and say, I can take your job over, you're still going to lose money. You did this, not me. But I can make you lose $2 million. I, I, can, I can bring this job in at only a $2 million loss. You're heading right for a $5 million loss. Agreed? Yeah, I can do it for with a $2 million loss. It's going to cost you half a million dollars extra. So um, I bring it in, $2 million loss. You give me a half a million dollars to do that for you. I'll bring my own people. We'll get to work. We're on it. We get to bill against the job the way that it is. You understand? I'm not paying people out of pocket 100% with that half a million dollars. Some, sure. But in the end, what I'm going to do is I am going to take this over, I'm going to manage it for you, and I'm going to crash the plane, but I'm going to keep the people on the plane alive. Now, if you already know you're going to lose $5 million, and you're not going to go bankrupt. If you're going to go bankrupt, you turn that deal down. But if you're going to keep the company as a going concern, and somebody can mitigate your loss from $5 million to two and a half, you take that deal every time. But that all started with a guy that started out going to storage sheds to do like the storage war thing before that was a thing, and it ruined it that found some tools, used the tools to do a job, did a job to get more tools, and built up an entire little empire off that. <laughs> Wealth is the product of man's capacity to think. How many people would have just had the same opportunity and not put it all together that way? The work ethic and the hard work is important, but without the thinking to go along with it, you can be the fly in the window. I've talked about this analogy before. I don't have a fly today doing it. I think the first time I ever talked about it, it just the fly showed up on cue, like he was on reading the script. And you see, everybody's seen a fly in a window. And that fly, in that little fly's brain, he can see the outside. He can see freedom. 
So what does he do? He flies harder and harder and harder and harder. And, if, and he won't leave the window. He just keeps pounding on it. I'm going to get it done, man. And if you don't do anything... You just leave that poor little bastard there. You don't shoot him with your bug assault gun or hit him with a fly swat or open the window because you like flies and let him free. There's a 99% chance you come back to him the next day, there'll be a dried up, legs up, dead fly in that windowsill. How would working harder at trying to get through the window, which the fly cannot do, ever work for the fly? So how can you working harder at something that already the math says it loses? You can lose less, but that's not your game. Unless you figure out a way to make that work, like my buddy did. This is how you have to start thinking about all these things. So it wasn't so much that my career was advanced because I didn't work as hard as the college student. It was because I worked hard at the things that really mattered. So not only did I have less, I didn't come out with $50,000 of student loan debt. I had, at the same point that that college graduate was getting out of college, with all that debt, I had no debt, very small income, but I had an income, and had a job history. And I was able to break into sales, and then one more move, and boom. You know, you're, you're, you know back, back then, that, that job was well over $200,000 a year job, and I was 26 years old. No college. Job required college. Didn't have it. Didn't matter. It didn't matter because everything in, that I had done was designed to get me into that type of a position. So when I was able to land an interview through a headhunter who sidestepped the entire college thing, by the time I got in the door did the interview with the people that were going to hire me, when they asked about college, I said, is that really that important at this point? That's exactly what I said. They said, well, I, I guess not. It's actually kind of impressive you've come this far without it. So the, the liability immediately turned into an asset. Why? Because I knew how to do an interview. Because that was part of what I learned in that educational time in my truck or with those headphones on polishing fiber optic connectors when other people weren't. This is the mindset you have to have. And then you start applying it to your homesteads, to your lives. I, I, like I said, I don't want to go deep into Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency. I think that your surplus capital, some of it belongs going into these assets, and specifically Bitcoin. That's all I'll say. Let's talk about more about how to get them. So you have two people. They have a very similar property, and they're in the homesteading. They like to garden and whatever. One person gardens and gets a yield. The other person gardens, grows plants, sells plants, gets a yield of plants, and gets a yield of money and a yield of food. So as they learn to propagate plants, they propagate their own plants. That way they're not buying plant. That shows down the outflow. Then they just do something really simple like get on next door, right, and say, I have 50 grapevines for sale. These are currently for sale at Lowe's, you know, a similar variety, but not as good as this one, smaller for $12 a plant. I'm selling mine for $8 a plant, cash money. They sell all of them. And what did I say? 50? All right. 400 bucks. Boom. 400 bucks you didn't have. You know how easy it is to propagate a grapevine? It's pretty damn easy. I've done it with, uh, purple, the Japanese purple sweet potatoes. Make slips, sell 10 slips, 
for, uh, I think last time I did, I did $5 per pack of 10 slips. And I think I sold like $100 bucks worth of them because that's all I wanted to make. And it was literally walking around my garden, cutting ends off of sweet potatoes, strip the leaves off half the stalk, and stick them in the air stacks in my pond. If you don't have a pond, you could do this with a freaking jar in the shade. Crush up a little bit of willow leaf, throw that in that jar. That'll just speed up the, the thing. If you have any kind of flow like I do, you're going to get really great roots. You put a picture, set it on next door, boom, there's money. For what? Propagating plants? There, there, there's so many ways to do this that really what it comes down to is can I figure out things that I, I relatively enjoy doing that are also profitable? And if I can figure out how to do something that I enjoy doing that I would do for free if money was no object and make that profitable, even if I get to where money's no object, why would I quit? Sounds a lot like a podcast I know. It's, it's, it's that mindset repeated over and over and over again. Somebody asked me one time here at one of the workshops. I think it was actually one, it was, I know who it was. It was a gentleman that was here to help me get ready for one. But I don't think he asked during the workshop. It's, those are, those memories are difficult to get specific with. There's so much goes on during a week like that. But I think it was in Lolita. He said, well, when, when did you, what was like your first hustle? And I was like, Eh, I don't know. I mean, I basically I told you know I, I used to get copper from the old mines and stuff like that. But I was in my teens and it wasn't really. It was just like it wasn't even a hustle. It was like I needed money to buy a car, so I did it. Um, and for those who haven't heard the story, I'm not going to retell it. But it, there's nothing illegal about what I was doing. It was it was pure salvage of something that had been abandoned since the 30s. Um, I'm like, yeah. And then I went, well, wait a minute. <laughs> When I was in, I think sixth grade or fifth grade, something like that. The cinnamon toothpick phrase hit Jacksonville, Florida. There were these little packages. They were like 20 cents. And there were like 10 of the shitty, flat, crappy toothpicks in them. And you chewed on them and they tasted like cinnamon. And, man, everybody was buying them. And so I go home one day and I have them. And my old man looks at him and goes, what the hell is that? So I tell him what it is. you know. And he goes, how much do they cost? I'm like, 20 cents. He goes... You know you can buy cinnamon oil and soak toothpicks in them, right? And you can make those things for almost nothing. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. You know, and I, I you know, I imagine like a box of. I didn't even buy them because he didn't, the old man, like, my old man wouldn't have cared about toothpicks, right? So a big giant box of toothpicks. He's like, you should get these and get some oil, right? So I go to my grandmother because I don't know how to get this stuff. And she, oh yeah, you can get that. So she gets me this little thing of oil, and I learned how to like basically impregnate the flavor because you used a little bit of the oil and diluted it with with a uh, another oil that was nowhere near basically a neutral oil because the cinnamon oil was really really strong and I started making these toothpicks and I started selling little baggies of them like they almost look like I was dealing drugs I think it's why I almost why I got in a little bit of trouble over this because I think that's what they thought at first but a little bag with 10 toothpicks in it for a dime Instead of the 20 cents, and they were better toothpicks. They were actual toothpicks, round ones, you know, that worked. And I was, again, fifth, sixth grade, I think, when that happened. So I guess some of us are wired with this mindset, like you see the opportunity, but I don't think that's actually the gift. I think everybody, in general, sees opportunities. I think the gift is knowing this opportunity at this time has the right ROI for the effort and the time I'm going to spend on it. 
Because as you mature in this ability, like I said, you do get to the point where you have more ideas than time. You have more opportunity. You see opportunity in everything. And what that becomes dangerous because if you pick things that are not going to have a good ROI, you spend your time and energy on things that have a low ROI. At a time when the the, the return itself, the, the, the capital output, is becoming weaker and weaker. And you miss opportunities. You know, I always offer discounts for cryptocurrency. Why? Because in general it appreciates. And I'm pretty good at picking good ones. So when somebody wants to pay with something, and I think it's a complete and total shit coin, um, basically what I'll say, like if it's, if it's that, it, it better be on one of my exchanges, and the, the price you're paying better meet the minimum deposit requirement. Because as long as that's the case, I'll just give you an exchange address, and the second I get it, I'm going to swap it into something I want, and I'm going to move it into one of my wallets. Why do I do that? Why would I give you a discount for that? Because, well, it works out. It works out to where I end up with more in the long run. I'm not thinking about today. I'm thinking about next year. And that was something that did take me time to develop. All these hungry years when I was a young kid, right? I'll be honest. I was working for moving up. I was working for making more money. I was working because I believed if I could get a really great corporate job paying me six figures, that would make me rich. And it made me financially well off, but it also made me emotionally and spiritually and physically miserable. So I had to find something else to do. But I didn't destroy my life when I reached that point. I just decided to do something else. And I just did the same thing again. I took everything I knew about sales and everything that I had learned about marketing in sales, and I turned my focus toward marketing, and I started basically doing online marketing side hustle while I was being paid a six-figure salary. Most people wouldn't do that. Well, I started out doing it to help myself in the job that I had. It was it was the dark days of the dot-com bust. And we were having trouble selling really expensive computer test equipment. Because it wasn't something people necessarily needed. The ones that needed it, those were what you call a lay-down sale. They just bought it. The people that like had the last edition, and you're trying to upgrade them, you're talking like a six, seven, eight thousand dollar test set, and they have one that they paid six thousand dollars for three years ago, and it still works. It still works. It just doesn't test to the latest standard, but they don't really need the, at least in their mind, they don't need the latest standard. They just need to know their cable's good. Hard to get them to buy. Well, you know how to get more sales if you're in sales and you're good at it. You you talk to more customers, you do more demos, you do more meetings. And whatever your percentage is doesn't matter because if we do more of those things, we get more sales. So if our, our, our percentage is a home run and it's like 70% close rate, then if we get you know 10 more demos, we get 7 more sales. That's, it's that simple. If, if our, our close rate is 20%, we get 10 more demos, we get 2 more sales. We have to be better at capitalizing on them. We can't spend as much time in each meeting, but we can. it's a very simple equation. So you get more demos. Well, how do you do that when your company's not getting them for you? You do it yourself. So we started, basically, we were running seminars where people would come in and learn about the equipment, and because of who we were and the way we did it, you actually got continuing education credits for different certifications, but we still had low response rates to it. 
right? They'd send out mailers and shit like that. Well, I started building very simple websites at the time, and I started saying to my reps, use this website to drive up your demos. Just email this. That was a big deal back then, right? To email something like th like this, a, a promotional thing. There wasn't, hey, I'm a Nigerian prince. Email them. Tell them about what it is. Look, the, the verb is just right on my company's website, but they're too stupid to email them. They think it'll bother them. So you email them and give them my link, not the company's link. And then I started learning about optimization. So when people were out and I figured out what they were searching for when they needed education credits for like their Bixie certifications or whatever. And I started optimizing my sites to where they outranked the company sites. But then I used my company. And when you wanted to book a seat, it just pushed you over to our, our company side of things. And I started booking more people to come sit in those seminars than the company was for my region. And we were going to larger and larger venues because we were hosting three or four hundred people when employees in other uh, regions, you know, the managers there, they were hosting half or a quarter of that. They, they were using a little bitty room at a Holiday Inn and we were using like a grand suite at a Holiday Inn. We were using giant union halls in Manhattan because we had so many people that wanted to come because we were marketing it. Now, Do you know what I got in return for that? Yelled at. I mean, they let me keep doing it because it was working too well not to, but in the end, they didn't like it. They didn't like it because I went and did my own thing without any approval, without asking any permission. I didn't give a shit. I already knew at that point, this is not going to last much longer. I'm not going to be here much longer. I don't want to do this anymore. I did that to make myself an immediate return because I was in commission sales. So... Every sale may, especially once I hit my, my quota, every sale after that on the bonus structure put more money in my pocket. So I knew this would pay off in the short run, but it gave me a new marketable skill, and it let me swap. And when that finally ended, I had offers from a dozen companies. They were all the same job in a different way. Instead of cable testers, it was cable and jacks. Right? It was some other form of regional sales management, management, managing manufacturers' reps, traveling all over the effing place. But, I mean, the, 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 it was just, tell us what you need. We want you. And I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I went from a high six-figure salary to my first job in Internet marketing making forty-five grand a year. At a point in my life where I'd gotten pretty used to making really good money. And I did it because I wanted to be surrounded by people that knew what I didn't know. So I walked in as an internet marketing specialist for an agency. Ended up running the whole damn place. Ended up chasing a customer of mine that left that went to another place. And when I went and tried to get, I'm like, you don't leave me. She left the, the, the company that was my customer. And she went to another company and she took over there as their chief marketing officer. And I'm like, oh, bullshit. So I made an appointment. I went in to see her so that I could get her as a, you know, get her new company as a customer for my old company, even though I wasn't in sales, though I had negotiated a commission schedule for, for things like this, because why wouldn't you, even though most people wouldn't? And I went up there to close the deal with her. And the first thing she did was hand me, hand me a job posting and say, I'd love to work with you. But honestly, this, this company just really doesn't have much of an internet marketing thing. And I'm like, well, you know what we do? We'll do it all for you. And she said, this is a bigger company. We don't work that way. There has to be basically 
a director of internet marketing here in a chair managing that because none of the other people here even understand whether or not we're being lied to. So she said, do you know anybody could, because, you know, once I have this position filled, then we can retain you. And I read it and I, I said to her, honestly, because of all the specialization in telecommunications and all the specialization in it. So I know one person that can walk in on day one and do this job. And it's me. And then I negotiated an incredible deal to take that position. And I went right back into six figures, and I was only out of it for about 18 months. Because everything that I did was designed for the next stage. I wasn't studying French literature. I wasn't wasting time with anything that didn't advance what I was doing. Instead of saying, I'm going to go to school for a year to learn this stuff and pay $45,000, I went to work for a year and made $45,000. And, and by then I had negotiated a sales side of incentive compensation and I was making, you know, extra money. And while I was doing that, I was expanding my abilities in internet marketing. And that's back when AdSense would make money from Google without a YouTube channel, just on websites. And I was knocking down three, four thousand, five thousand dollars a month in AdSense revenue on stupid little sites about things like American Idol stars. And running arbitrage, where I was buying cheap traffic, pushing it to my site, and reselling it through the advertising I was being paid to run. And that lasted as long as it could. And so, then I end up working with Neil Franklin, the only person I know that's ever won the Richard Branson Award twice. One of the most fascinating entrepreneurs in the world. It gave me incredible opportunities. And what I asked for in salary, it was just immediately like, yes, yeah, sure, if that's what it takes, done had a great working relationship, and from there built this show. Eventually, I got tired of working in that environment. I really didn't want to be there anymore, and I walked away. We remained friends, did a lot for him, but it was like, I'm, it's time to go do what I want to do now on my own. And so people look at this and go, well, man, Jack, you just started in 2008, and by like 2010, you had over 25,000 listeners, and you had a full-time income. It was like an overnight success. Yeah, sure. There's the whole thing. There's the whole thing. So what, what do you take from that? What are you going to do with all this? Because all I did was just give you a piece of my life and the lessons from it and the thinking that got me where I am. It, you can't do it the way I did it. right? You're going to have to do it for yourself. It's not the, the exact steps. It's the mindset and the methodology. Where are you going to start? You know, My first websites I ever built... Back when I was building the ones for Fluke Networks to book my own people, like even before that, I had to learn how to do it. I built websites that let people run a search for the cheapest long-distance provider they could get. And I sold as an affiliate. And there were literally 200,000 other online affiliates in that one program, and there were other programs. And we were all competing for Long Distance Service Texas. They were stupid, ugly little websites, and they made me a little bit of money. Not a ton of money. But competing at that level, that made me really good at website marketing, search engine optimization. There's a lot of people that did that, 200,000 plus of them. That particular organization, um, you ended up knowing people that were good in it. 
and there was probably a couple dozen that actually made a little bit of money like I did, and there was maybe a couple dozen more that made really good money. One two-guy crew built an entire thing on the same model and created their own company, but it did it in the world of like data services like OC3s and T1s and stuff like that. They did well. Everybody else I know from that world never did anything with all that knowledge they gained, to my knowledge. The one guy texted me and told me he was retired, and when, he, when I'm like, well, okay, what'd you do? He got hurt really bad and got on disability and considered himself retired. They all had the same opportunity. But they didn't connect the dots. And I'm telling you this not like to say, hey, look what I did. It's more, do you have opportunities that you're playing around with right now? that could lead to something really, really great if you start connecting things together, if you start to think about it differently, if you start asking yourself, where is this taking me? What does this look like long term? Without analysis paralysis and without trying to know exactly. Like when I started TSP, I didn't know exactly how I would do sponsors. I didn't know how the membership program would work. I built the thing. And when people started trying to give me money for free, for nothing... I said, well, now I need to turn on monetization. What does that look like? And I analyzed what I had built, and then I created the revenue stream based on what it was. That's not always what you do. Sometimes it's good to go in with a monetary plan from the beginning. It all depends. What we do, no matter what, you got to be looking at. I'm learning X. How does this help me with Y? And if it doesn't, then I don't need to do it. Maybe I need to skip over to Z. Here's an example. A good friend of mine was over last night, and I just had this really nice custom cabinet put in, and I had a concrete countertop. It's an outdoor cabinet. Concrete con countertop put on it. It looks great. And he's a very he's the same guy that I was talking about with the business model of saving people money by making them lose less money. Really handy guy, really good construction. He looks at it, and he says, yeah, this is really nice. He said, I've always thought about learning how to do this. But how many times am I going to do it? And I said, you know, and anything you do, like your shittiest one is your first one, right? He goes, yeah, and if you're only going to build one, then you've built one that's not really great. You could have paid somebody to do it. It doesn't make any sense. Like if I was going to, you know, if I was going to end up, you know, remodeling houses and every house that I remodeled, I was going to put one of these in, then I would learn how to do it. But if I'm going to have one, I'm going to have to look at it for the rest of my life. I'm going to pay somebody else who already knows how to do it. That's that's the thinking I'm talking about. What's the point in doing a thing if it doesn't do anything for you tomorrow? If it saves you enough money to be worth doing, and you can live with the imperfections in it, if it's a project like that, maybe it makes sense. If you don't have anything else to do with the time you're going to spend doing it, maybe it makes sense. If you're thinking that one day you might want to be in kind of a world where you're doing things like this, then it makes sense. If you already know... Well, I'm not going to be going around putting in concrete countertops for people. Unless you really enjoy and you get joy and recreation and leisure from it, the time you're spending doing that, you could spend doing something to make money or to advance yourself or to get joy and leisure. All three options are better than you don't want to do it, you're not going to enjoy it, you're not going to use it again, and it's not going to save you enough money to be worth it, and it's not going to be the quality you're looking for. If you get pure joy from laying in a hammock, if you take the time you would have spent doing that and lay in a hammock and reflect on the world, 
you're ahead, assuming you can afford the thing in the first place. That's the mindset I'm talking about. And start applying it to all the ways that you apply effort to things. All the ways that you spend your dash, your life force, your, your, your physical human energy is finite. It doesn't go forever. And as you get older, because when you young guys are like 20 and 30, I remember when I was 20 and 30, I would work people in the ground. Not a lot of people that were older than me working for me, and I didn't understand why they were dragging ass. I understand now. Right? You, you think you're going to always be able to rely on that physical ability to earn. And that physical ability is not just, you know, swinging a hammer, driving a nail. You know, it's also like the physical energy it takes to be a thinker and to just do management level and project level stuff, right? All of that declines as we age. So you have to capitalize on it as much as possible while you're in your prime, while you're in your peak. One of the reasons I'm so hard on the younger generation, and I'm talking about people like 20 to 30, is how little they're accomplishing with those 10 years. How little they're accomplishing. Because, man, that's when you can work two jobs. That's when you can have a job and a side hustle and another side hustle. And that's when you can have all those side hustles involve, you know, butt time in a car and, and be learning something or structure it some other way. That's when you can do all that shit. But no, they're wasting away spending six years to do four or seven years to do four years of college. I guess COVID kind of killed that off. But it'll come back. We didn't change. Right? I mean, colleges are going to crumble. There's going to be a lot less of them. But there'll be enough of them. If you want to spend six years or eight years of your life wasting away in college, you'll be able to do it. And, and, and they'll find some other way to do it. They're playing video games. You know what? If you're going to be one of those like super gamers that makes a lot of money doing it, okay. If you're learning to be a programmer and you want to be in that world and make money from it, okay. As long as you're advancing that by what you're doing. If it's your pure recreation, that's fine. But if all your time, other than your J-O-B or your school, is spent doing nothing but recreation... In those prime years, my God, are you wasting it? You're wa and stop doing that. Stop wasting those. Those are the golden years. We talk about the golden years being like you're 65 and up or whatever when you retire being golden years. No. No. Those are the years hopefully you did well enough that you can live well for the rest of your life without having the ability to work. The golden years are the years where you earn the gold. The golden years are the years where you lay the foundation for the rest of your life. And guys, it's 20 to 30. That's when that is. I talk to people sometimes in their mid-30s that are like, well, I finally got an apartment, and I'm finally all grown up. And I'm like, holy shit, no, you're not. If you're even saying those words, you're not. And what did you do with the last 15 years of your life? People that are in their 30s and their $70,000, $80,000 still in student loan debt. Why? Because you were tricked. I get it. But at some point you have to turn the corner. You have to change the way you think about all these things. Because this is one of those places where no one can do it for you. I can't do this for you any more than I can get up and watch the sunrise for you. And watch the hues of red as the sun comes up and watch as the sun gets higher and higher then burn away into yellow and orange and disappear. And then the sun is fully rose. And appreciate that. That's the thing everybody should do at some point in their life. 
more than once, get up before the sun and do nothing but watch the sun come. But only you can do it. And even if I did it on your behalf, it's not real. Only you have the rods and cones in your eyes and your optic nerves. And you are going to see that even if we were standing on the same exact X on the ground. I know we can't do it at the same time, but if we could, you're going to see it and perceive it differently than me. I, I remember when I was so hungry in those years. I mean, I was physically hungry too at times, but I mean hungry for opportunity, hungry for anybody to tell me what, tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. And the mentors I found would always focus, Jack, this is how you have to think. And I remember saying one time to a guy, it's easy for you to say, right? And he said, yeah, but I said it before it was easy. And that's why it's easy now. That is what's missing in our society today. This nation used to be a nation that built incredible things, that did incredible things. And now we've outsourced most of that to other parts of the world. And we make excuses like, well, the government this and the government. The government's not the one that quit trying. They might have gotten away. They might have created an obstacle. But what do I always say about restrictions? The more restrictions upon a design, the more eloquent the design if the designer is good at his trade. People talk about designing a garden, a house, a backyard, a landscape, a car. What about your life? You know, the truth of the Survival Podcast is a better name for it than the Survival Podcast is the Lifestyle Design Podcast. You know why it's not what it's called? Because if I did that, it'd be really hard to teach people about prepping, which is the critical component to lifestyle design. It's critical. You design anything, you have to design non-brittleness and resiliency into it. Or it's a shitty design, right? So it'd be hard to do. But the other thing was I was a marketer. And I looked. And I said, well, if I do this, I can have 10, 20,000 listeners in a year or two. At least, if I do this lifestyle design thing, I can have like 5,000. <laughs> and I get to do the same thing. I'm just calling it something different. TheSurvivalPodcast.com. Search. Domain available. Buy. Boom. Business is born. It was like that. Went to a guy, hey man, you do pretty decent designs. I need a logo. He designed Val. Put the first site together. It was okay. Good enough. 300 bucks. Done went on with building my life. If you don't get into that line of thinking, it is going to be very, very, very difficult for you to thrive in the coming years, especially if you're young. If you're older and you already have built up enough wealth on the old paradigms, if you're a good steward of that wealth, you're in a pretty good position. There's also a lot of ways to get wiped out. We're not going to go there today. But we have, those of us that are our age, we have a tremendous advantage in the time that we came up in. Now, a lot of, like, I'm a Gen Xer. We did come up at a time when the boomers were still at the top of the hierarchy. And there was so many of them. There weren't a lot of jobs for us. It was harder to get in the door. But once you did, you know, we came through dot com and all. We came through this incredible growth phase, all these opportunities. And 
it was still, if you did want to go to the educational route, school was still affordable. And a degree meant something. One reason I'm so hard on colleges now is how little it means to have a degree today. It means so little in so many instances. But you put all this time and all this money into something that has so little return. There's other places where it's the only way, and there's places where it's a great way in the door. But if you don't know where you're going, you might choose the wrong vehicle for the trip. Let's say that I said to you, hey, I have two cars. I have a Subaru Outback and a Dodge Challenger. You're taking a trip. Which one do you want to drive? A lot of you just thought the Challenger. I want to drive GX Challenger way too fast. I want to see if it really does do 150, 160 miles an hour. Right? I want to see that. Okay? But if you don't know what where you're going, you might pick the wrong car. Because if you're going through the desert or on a bunch of dirt roads, while there's better vehicles than a Subaru Outback, it's a pretty damn good vehicle for it. And you ain't taking my Challenger on no dirt roads. It ain't happening. So many people, that's what happens when they choose an educational path. They don't know where they're going. So how can you possibly choose the right vehicle? That's what college is. It's a vehicle on your career path. All this shit about, you know, broader understanding of the world and immersion experience and bullshit. That's not what people spend thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year on. No, they we sell college on the concept that by completing this thing, you'll do better economically in life. That's how it's sold. That's the only reason people spend the kind of money they do on it. If that wasn't the, if they didn't, if people didn't believe that, they wouldn't make the investment because they would know it out of the gate. It's a bad investment. So, what's the best advice I can give somebody that's considering that investment? Excel. Excel never lies. Find out what people make. What's the median starting salary? What's the median five-year salary? What's the median ten-year salary? How much does it cost to fund that education? Run the numbers in reverse. What's your ROI on it? I know a guy that did that in, in a high school, at a charter school. Had, to, had his kids take their careers that they were thinking about and run that analysis. And he almost got fired. He had enraged parents. Because he had them do this exercise. The most fundamentally logical thing you can do when you're talking about going into six figures of debt is a fundamental, logical, financial analysis. Do you know why they were enraged? Because about half the kids went, well, that'll never pay off. I'll never get my money back. I'm not doing that. As soon as they became informed, they, they made a different decision And this enraged the school, and it enraged the parents, who clearly weren't being logical. They were buying on, they, they believed in ego. You know, Johnny's off at school, sounds great to the neighbors. This mindset must end. And no, it's not going to end. It's slowly beginning to die. The walls are crumbling. The gatekeepers are falling. More and more people are realizing the education you can give yourself today pales You know, with the education I could give myself with books on tape is shit compared to the education you give yourself completely for free today. You don't even have to go to half-price books. You want to learn about wealth? Go listen to The Richest Man in Babylon. It's on YouTube and it's free. Oh my God, it's one of the greatest lectures on wealth building that there is. You can't come away from that if you're serious about what you're learning and not do better in life from it. And I think it's like three and a half hours. You can spread it out over a few days. Obviously, you listen to audio or you wouldn't be hearing me right now. 
It's free. We have Michael Saylor with the Saylor Academy, not Bitcoin, Saylor Academy. College-level education for free. The Khan Academy, right? Um, I can't think of the guy's name, Thaddeus Russell. He has his educational platform, and it costs money, but it's cheap. He's educated at Columbia University. Incredibly brilliant man. We, we have so much opportunity today. And all I'm saying is, make sure you're making the right choices based on your destination. And that starts out with figuring out what your destination is. And what I want to end with is, don't think that means that to start the journey, you have to be like, like if it was me. And I was back in those days, driving around in my little Nissan truck, you know, going from Houston to El Paso, etc., working in long-distance phone terminals for MCI as a contractor that I needed to know, well, what I want to do is I want to be a podcaster when the word podcast didn't exist yet. It's not fundamentally not possible. You start the journey, and you adjust course as you continue down the line of the journey. This process is not a process that you do and execute. It's a process that you do, you execute on it, you retool, you, you redo the process, and you execute again, and it's continuous forever. I'm going to be making some changes here. And like I said, the tone won't change, whatever, but I'm going to make some logistical changes going forward. I'm going to do some things that let me work a little less hard. But I don't think it's going to, I don't think there'll be any suffering in quality, but I'm going to give myself another day of the week back to be here on my little farm piddling around, to spend it with my grandchildren, to spend it with my wife, to go fishing. I'm going to go to a four day work week after my vacation. If it doesn't work, if it, if it does cause any sort of decline in quality or response from the audience, then I'll go back to where I am now. But I'm going to make that adjustment and I'm going to take the feedback from it. And I'm going to look at how does this advance my long-term goals in life. And I also look at it, you know, 13 years, guys. 13 years, except for workshops, public appearances and vacations, five shows a day, many weeks, five videos or more a week, tons of other content, tons of other things. I have worked harder in these 13 years than any other time in my life. And it's totally worth it. But there's also a time where you start to say, hey, I'm due to start reaping some of these rewards of all this effort. To phase things back a little bit. I don't know. I think I'll probably still be doing a podcast when I'm 80. But I won't be doing five a week. There is a point where we all reach that level. Don't worry. I'm not close yet. I mean, there'll be 20, 30 years of TSP. There really will. And there'll be some, I, mean, I think even when I get to a point where maybe I'm doing a show a week, there'll still be the, the whole support mechanism and network will still be going. And just think about the catalog of data at that point, the catalog of information. And 90% of my shows are evergreen. I might have learned more, I might have changed things a little bit, but they're, if they were valuable in, in 2015, they're valuable today. It amazes me still, I get people, hey Jack, I found your show, I listen to a new one every day, and I, I started at one. So I listen to your new show, and I listen to episode one. And the next day I listen to a new show, and I listen to episode two. And new show, and episode three. It's crazy to me. 
I have one guy, he's up into the 200s right now. It's exactly what he's doing. He's like, these, these episodes from back then, it sounds like it was more politics back then. Because I had to, you know, I was doing it in the car. I had to, you know, use current events and stuff like that. He's like, it all sounds like the same shit's going on today. I'm like, well, of course it does. Even the political stuff, even the current event stuff, it's still the same shit. Because once you see the pattern, you can't not see the pattern. You can't look at a checkerboard and not recognize it as a checkerboard. Because you know the pattern. Those of you that are old enough, there's, remember they used to put a test pattern on TV. Like, it would get late enough at night, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, and they would play the national anthem, you'd see the flag waving, an eagle flying, and then it would go, boo, and it would be a test pattern. If you're old enough to remember that, you can't look at a test pattern and not know what it is. You see the pattern. You can't look at, once you know how to identify a species of tree, there's a leaf pattern to it. You can't look at it and not know what it is. Once you are switched on to pattern, then pattern recognition is so ingrained in human beings because it's so vital to our survival, right? Seeing patterns is vital to human survival. It really is. Think about Paleolithic times and not being able to learn pattern. You eat the wrong thing, you die. You see the wrong the track and you follow the track and it's a saber-toothed cat, you die, right? I mean, there's there was a time where it was... You either learned pattern or you suffered consequence fast. And only the people that did lived. Only the people that adapted to this concept survived. And we carry their genes. And even though we don't have some of their abilities, we've lost some of that. We, that ability of pattern recognition is in us. It's a matter of cultivating and understanding it. And that's another thing. If you want to, if you want to be wealthy, you have to be good at pattern recognition. In the past, if you didn't know how patterns worked, then you starved, or you ate something poisonous, or something killed you, or you ended up in the wrong place, and the other tribe put you in a pot and cooked you as a cannibal tribe, right? Something bad happened that was physically injured. You know, it either ended your life or it seriously hurt you. Today, lack of pattern recognition understanding leads to poor decisions and bad economic out outcomes. And not just, when we talk about economics, we probably should do another show on the eight forms of capital. I haven't done that for a long time. Maybe we'll do that Thursday. I've got an interview tomorrow. Because wealth is, is so beyond money. That's really what we talked about today. I think it's a good place to end. We'll talk about social capital. We'll talk about human capital. We'll talk about experiential capital. We'll go beyond the financial capital on Thursday. Tomorrow, like I said, we have a great interview. Um, and I'm not going to tell you I'm going to breath today. It will be a surprise when we do it. With that, let's wrap up. Let me remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, what can you do? Online shopping at tspaz.com. Come on, tspaz. Tspaz, it's easy. You can't, like, just like a pattern, you can't forget tspaz. Eh? Who, who would forget tspaz? So tspaz.com, you start your shopping there. No matter what you buy, you help support us. I talked a lot about today about the value of your time. One way we can make our time better is to use automation on our homesteads. Imagine if you have to turn something on and off once a day, multiple times a day, whatever. It takes time to go do it. It also takes time to... It, it, it takes resources to remember to do it. And then there's a consequence if you forget and it doesn't happen. I forget things a lot when I get distracted because I have ADD. And I'm okay with that, but... Automation helps with all those things. The simplest form of automation with ele involving electricity is, you know, one and zero binary, on and off. And a mechanical timer from Century, uh, Century will do that for you. This is my favorite timer. 
It has 15-minute increments of on and off. Every hour has four little pins, and you just push them down or lift them up. Down is on, up is off. Then you turn the dial to the time that it is right now, plug it in, plug whatever you want into it, and done. What if you need to turn it on during the off time? There's a little switch on the side. You flip it from timer to on, and then you turn it back off, and it goes back to running on the timer. I use this in aquaponic systems. I use this in lighting. I use this anywhere that I need to turn something on and off a certain number of times every day. And I love using it for ebb and flow systems in aquaponics and hydroponics. 15 on, 45 off. That's my standard that I use for most ebb and flow. Never fails, works, and it just works over and over and over again. And they're on sale today. They're only like a buck off, but that's like 25% or something because they're only like $9.50 and they're like 8 bucks today. So if you have any place for this type of automation in your life, this is the way to go. And I have to say that I am not a person that in general likes most timers. I think most timers are needlessly complicated. There's all kinds of bullshit. They don't want to work. These were the first ones I found that just work. They always work. They're easy to understand. And for a lot of things I do with them, the time doesn't even matter. If you're doing 15 on, 45 off for ebb and flow, you know what? It doesn't matter what time it is. I don't even worry about setting them for that. 15 on, 45 off. Doesn't matter if the timer thinks it's 3 o'clock in the morning, if that's what I'm doing. There's times when you do care. Even with things like plant lighting. So you have an indoor uh, hydro system, let's say, and you have plant lights over it. And you have it set for 12 on, 12 off. Power goes out. It's a mechanical timer. It's not digital. It doesn't lose its settings. It just stops working. comes back on after two hours. Yeah, there's a two-hour lag, but you still have 12 on, 12 off. Plants don't give a shit. It's just a great tool. I am a big believer that when we spend our money on a thing, we should get the best value-to-price ratio. It should just work, and it should just always work. This thing works. That's why it's one of my recommended products. Remember, this product, any product I recommend, or anything you buy, if you just start at tspaz.com, you can help support us in the work that we do. Uh, reminder, MSB is on sale today. Um, it got extended because of the announcement yesterday that we now have Dr. Earth Fertilizer as an MSB supporter, 10% off all Dr. Earth products. So I said, well, since that happened on the day the sale ended, I'm going to extend the sale. And then I woke up this morning, and I checked my email box, and I had like 20 emails. Uh, Jack, um, you said you were extending the sale. Um, it didn't work. Code failed. Screenshots. I'm like, shit. So I got busy yesterday. Buddy came over with his wife, got distracted, made the announcement, never changed the coupon code. So it's on sale today, and I'm going to do it tomorrow, too. I'm so excited about Dr. Earth joining us, and I feel bad that some of you got hosed, and you may not get an answer now. You may have thought it went away, um, and you may not listen to this till late tonight. So I'm going to the, – the sale will run today and tomorrow. It will end tomorrow at midnight now. Uh, that's midnight Central Standard Time on the 14th. And I'm sorry to those of you that tried to sign up to get the discount. All right. With that, let's wrap things up with the song of the day. Again, we're doing the Michael Stanley band this week. Um, when I when I went to pull this video on this song and, and grab the audio from it, I found at the beginning of it, I'm like, is this an advertisement? And I'm like, yeah, but it's like an advertisement from like 1980s. It's MTV. And there's David Bowie in it and Cyndi Lauper in it and everything like that. And I was like, you know, I could edit that out. But since we're so big on looking at the past today, why don't we uh, we leave it in there? 
This is back when MTV used to play music. As for the song, this is a great song. Again, I'm really digging the Michael Stanley band. And I was like, I never heard of these guys before. And when I heard this song, I was like, oh, I have heard them before. I just didn't know who it was. I didn't remember. Um, if it was on MTV in the 80s, <laughs> as an 80s kid, guys, I, I probably heard it. And I did hear this one. This song is really about kind of that feeling that so many of us have for the place we grew up. Even if there's things about it you don't like, generally there's always some sort of like thing that draws you back to that hometown of yours. Um, I can't say I share that sentiment at this point in my life, but I do kind of feel this way about the place that I live right now. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Turn it on. Leave it on. America, see the music you want to see. I want my MTV. What? I want my MTV. I want my MTV. 24 hours a day on cable TV. In stereo, interviews, BJ, your day, world premiere video, special, music news. I want my MTV, MTV, MTV. Two matches, never enough.